Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Five Oaks. My name is John Eisolt. I serve as our executive pastor of ministries, and I'm uh, glad that you're with us this morning. If you're new with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you again. We're glad that you're here with us. Uh, we are diving into uh, the sixth message in kind of a two-part, eight-message series on Christian sexuality. And this weekend, we are looking at same-sex attraction, and, and we're going to discover uh, what that looks like and what we believe. And now, to, to build up to this point, we've been building a framework, really, that started this fall uh, to help us to look at God's Word about this challenging topic. And we're doing this because it's important for us to have a foundation for how we think about and, and how we, how, what we believe and, and where that comes from. Understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, and God's purpose for our lives shouldn't be a mystery, but it oftentimes is. And if we don't understand what the Bible says about something, then we are left to, to what the culture is saying or what society is saying, and, and we're kind of torn about what it is that we, that we ought to believe and, and how God is instructing us and leading us on, on some of these difficult topics of our day. So parents, as we dive into this message today, know that if you haven't started to have conversations with your kids about this or your students about this, they have already heard about this. Uh, not just because we're talking about it in youth group, they won't see this message uh, or interact with it until Wednesday, but, uh, but our kids are immersed in it. Our students are, are thinking about it. They're seeing it out in culture, on TV, in places that and we need to be able to speak to it. And students, I want to give you an encouragement as well that we know that this is a difficult topic for you to, to try to figure out what to believe and how to live this out. And you've got friends that are on either end of, of this spectrum, and, and you yourself may be at times wondering, what is all of this, and how do I process this in light of my faith? This weekend, as we talk about same-sex attraction, for many of you, this is the message that you've been waiting for. When we talked this fall about starting a, a series on Christian sexuality, this is the one that you've been waiting for. This, this, this idea of and this process of understanding what the Bible says about same-sex attraction. What do we actually and specifically believe? And what does that then mean for how we live? And what does that also mean for our church community? We're going to approach this topic biblically with grace and with truth. And what that means is that this sermon starts in and rests on what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality while also recognizing that it is God's grace that reconciles us to himself. And then it will extend in to help us think about sexuality and how we all live our lives as Jesus' representatives to the world, bringing hope and grace into our circles of influence. This is a polarizing topic, and as we spend time emphasizing how to approach it with grace, some of you will be very supportive of, of that, while others may be concerned that our approach is, should be clearer or, or maybe more harsh in, in some way. And in the same way, when we emphasize the truth of what God's word is saying, some of you will be supportive of that, and others will feel like it was too harsh or legalistic. And even the different words and phrases that we use can be polarizing. Using the phrase same-sex attraction or SSA as an abbreviation, as well-meaning as it is, is offensive to many. And using the letters LGB or LGBTQ is bothersome to some, as is simply using the term gay. And oftentimes we accuse others of having a certain agenda based on which terms and context they use. And that is something that we get out from our political atmosphere that's out in our culture and society right now. And today our only aim, our only agenda is to understand what God says about this and how we live that out. We can't read the Bible in a vacuum and, and isolate ourselves from, from 
in and of itself. And I want you all to know that this sermon series also hasn't been written in a vacuum. This sermon itself hasn't been written in a vacuum. We've worked on these as a teaching team. We've consulted with others, particularly using the sexuality curriculum that we'll look at a little bit today that we're using. Uh, we, we've talked with, with, with people who are straight and gay, and, and many have become friends because of this topic and how we've, we've conversed with them and, and really helped ourselves to understand how to think biblically about this. So we're going to do with this message what we've done with all of these messages along the way. We're going to, we're going to find a third way. And that means that we are not going to affirm same-sex marriage, but we're also not going to cut gay people out of the kingdom of God. We're going to find a third way for how we live in this together as a church. And if we don't think biblically and practically about this issue, we will fail to bring the hope that we are called to bring to the people around us. We will also fail to have an, a foundational understanding of what the Bible says about sexuality. So what if we could look at and understand same sexuality in a way that moves all of us from some sort of ideological end and moves us closer to the heart of God, both in what we believe and how we live? This is the true work of discipleship, and that's what we're going to do today. We are approaching this topic sincerely and reverently and humbly, and as we pause in a moment to pray, let's open our hearts and minds to examine God's word and be open to learning and being challenged. There are some concepts and some terms and some, some pieces to this message that ought to be challenging to us all. And if we approach any issue and only look for the things that support our current position we close ourselves off from the growth that God wants for us to have. There are people in our church family for whom these topics are not merely sermons or issues or Bible studies. They are real-life experiences, struggles, hurts, and pain. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in our church family for whom a same-sex attraction is something that they experience on an ongoing basis. And the beauty of the church is that we get to do this together. We get to walk through this together as a community. Let's pray as we start our time together. Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts to you because we need you and we want to hear from you. Thank you for the way that you speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit, help us to listen. Help us to know you and to understand your truth. And we pray that you would empower us and bring your light to the world around us. We pray that you would be with us as we honor the work and life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. tomorrow. We pray that you would help us to continue his work, both in our own hearts and in the society and world around us. God, we pray for racial equality and justice. And Father, as we continue to journey to a deeper understanding of Christian sexuality, we pray for your guidance. Give us confidence in your word and soften our hearts and transform us to be a reflection of who you are in all that we say and do. Amen. So last week, Henry, Pastor Henry started our, our, this, kind of our, the second part of this eight-sermon series with a sermon on singleness and intimacy, and he started with a review, and we're going to start there again today. What the Bible teaches about sex sounds really weird to a lot of people, including the majority of the people whose stories are told in the Bible, but we get our marriage and sex ethic from Jesus. What that means is that marriage is meant to be a lifelong commitment. Marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman, and sex is meant to be experienced exclusively in marriage. Now, these biblical truths raise some questions about same-sex attraction 
and sexuality in general, as well as the role of the church as the family of God. What does this mean for the church as the family of God? So we're going to look at three questions. And the first is, what does this mean for someone who is gay or bisexual? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, first of all, every human being is an image bearer of God. And the Bible establishes that, and Jesus reestablishes that and defends that in his treatment of and his ministry to people. All people are on a journey towards living out their faith and obedience to God's word. So what, what does it actually mean to be gay? What do we, what, what do we mean by that? Uh, and Well, it means a, a lot of things out in our culture and our society, and, and, and we're, we're going to define it very simply. That then the, I, I want to step back for a second because as we look at this, there's going to be some new things that, that, are, that might be new to you. But there's some different ways that people who consider themselves to be gay live that out in a faithful, God-honoring way. It doesn't mean that their sexuality is subjective to themselves. It means that as they are pursuing scripture, they are doing it not in a laissez-faire, I get to do what I want to do type of a way, but in a way that says, I am going to follow God's word, and I also am going to live in this way that is honoring to God. But very simply, being gay does not mean that you don't love Jesus, and it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't love you. Being gay does not mean that you don't love Jesus or that Jesus doesn't love you. It simply means that you're attracted, exclu- attracted exclusively to the same sex and not the opposite sex. Or in the case of, of bisexuality, you are attracted to both your same sex and the opposite sex. This is a quote from, our, from the curriculum that we're using in our student ministry and to help us form our, our thoughts and biblical thinking on this topic. And says, all people need to know that they are beloved by the creator of the universe. Simply experiencing attraction to the same sex is not a morally culpable sin. Someone can be same-sex attracted or gay and faithfully follow God. God gives clear instructions for sex and marriage, and he also loves and cares for all people. For people who are same-sex attracted, faithfully upholding God's sexual ethic uh, looks the same in, in one sense and can also look different. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. And many of the stories that I will share with you today and some of the clips that we will watch from, from the sexuality curriculum are people who are, all of them are faithfully following God. Uh, some are single and celibate, meaning that they are not in a relationship and they're not engaging in, in same-sex sex. And, 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 many, and some of them are in what is called a mixed orientation marriage. And what that means is that one partner in the marriage is same-sex attracted and the other is opposite-sex attracted. And yet they are faithfully devoted to one another as husband and wife. And they, they love God and they love each other and they're faithful to each other. But it is how they're living out God's ethic of, of sex and marriage in, in the midst of an attraction that is to the same, to the same sex. And so this is, that may be a new notion to you, and that's okay. That's one of the terms that's going to just allow that to, to soak in a little bit. And with sexuality in general, for all of us, one of the questions that comes up next is like, okay, well, where, where, where is sin and where does not sin? Where is the line here? Well, to better understand what it means to be gay and the distinction between what is sin and what is not sin, I want to look together at one of the teachings from our Christian sexuality curriculum. This is Greg Coles. Take a look. So when we talk about being gay, I think it's important for us to be clear what exactly we mean by that and to distinguish between a couple very different things that the word gay can mean. One of those things is simply the experience of attraction to the same sex. 
And by attraction here, I just mean broadly over the course of time, you find that you might have an attraction to a specific person. So when I say I'm gay, I don't mean that I am attracted to every man that I see at all times. I mean that generally over the course of my lifetime, the tendency is that if I'm going to be attracted to someone, it is going to be a man, even though I'm not attracted to every man that I see, though I'm sure many of you are very handsome. Congratulations. But it's important for us to distinguish same-sex attraction from particular moments of same-sex temptation where we might see a particular person and say, ah, I am tempted to lust after that person. And we need to distinguish those things from same-sex lust, which is when I don't just notice, but I notice, and I dwell in a way that's unhealthy, in a way that makes someone else the object of my desire. And we need to distinguish same-sex lust from physical same-sex sexual behavior. Now, when we're asking which of those things are sin, I would draw the line between temptation and lust. The Bible is pretty clear that temptation itself is not a sin. We know that Jesus experienced temptation. We know that the, the Bible says when we experience temptation, God will give us a way out of temptation so that we don't sin. So to experience temptation is not sin. Certainly to experience a general pattern of attraction over your life is not sin. Once we move into lust, once we move into sexual behavior, that's where we start to talk about sin. So when I call myself gay, what I'm doing is naming the nature of my attraction over the course of time and naming the fact that when I do experience sexual temptation, which doesn't happen all the time, but happens enough, when I do experience sexual temptation, here is the way that I experience sexual temptation. Those are the things that I mean when I use the word gay. Such a fantastic and powerful explanation. And Greg is gay and celibate and, and also, as you can tell, very smart and very well read. And as I have watched his video and, and, and just taken in what he's saying, it's a perfect example of why if we as the church don't find a way to include people who are same-sex attracted and living this out faithfully uh, to God, we miss out on helping and having people help us not just think about what it means to be gay, but what it means to be straight and how we live this out faithfully in our, in our heterosexual relationships and marriages. Uh, I want to introduce Lori Craig to you. Lori is an author and a speaker. She's same-sex attracted, married to a man, so it's a mixed orientation marriage like we talked about. And, and she says this about same-sex attraction, that God's love empowers us not to become straight, but to surrender our brokenness to him daily. God's love empowers us not to become straight, but to surrender our brokenness to him daily. And this helps us to break down another thing that we oftentimes think about, or historically we've maybe in, with our best intentions have thought about in the church. And that is that, well, can't people's orientation be fixed? Can't, can't they go to like a camp or a ministry and, and be converted back to, to their, their straight orientation? Well, there was a ministry that, that existed for a time called Exodus International, and that was their mission. Their mission was to help people to, to reverse their orientation back to a straight orientation. But the director of the organization closed them down because as he watched the work that they were doing, he noticed two things. One, it wasn't working, and two, it was causing immense pain and hurt in people's lives. And so he shut it down. 
Now, there are ministries that still exist that still have the aim of doing that. And, and does it mean that, that, that converting someone's orientation back to a straight orientation is impossible? No. Can God do it? Yes. But it doesn't mean that that is prescriptive and that it has to happen to everyone in order for them to follow Jesus. Chase Sachs is the name of a guy that came to speak with us uh, this, this fall, and Chase is, is gay and celibate, and he is a devoted follower of Christ, and has become a dear friend to many of us here at Five Oaks as he has journeyed with us to help us better understand how to speak to this topic and invite people and, and, and open this conversation in our church. And I asked Chase this question. as one of the questions that he was asked when he was here is, well, have you ever thought about going back to figure out why you're gay? And have you ever thought about that maybe you could figure that out, that then maybe you wouldn't be gay? And first of all, consider what that, what that question means to someone. Has anyone ever asked you, have you ever gone back and figured out why you're straight? And so we don't, in the church, we have to be careful to not create an othering effect. And Chase's response was wonderful. I chatted with him on the phone yesterday for a while and ran through this sermon with him. And, and this is what he said. He said, if you keep pursuing that question as if the answer would bring you closer to God, then I think you're going to be disappointed. The reality is that I am gay. And living in faithfulness means submitting that aspect of my life and every aspect of my life to Christ. And so what Chase is saying here is that for him or anyone who experiences a same-sex attraction to pursue the, 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 the why of how they got to where they are actually becomes a sort of an idol in and of itself. That I'm not going to be faithful to, the circum- to God in the circumstances that I have right now. I'm going to go back and see if I can fix it myself. And Chase is saying, that is futile. And it's actually unfaithful to what God is saying. God is saying, come to me. Come to me as you are. And, and, and let's walk through this together. And that leads us to our second point, which is, what does this mean for all of us regarding our sexuality? My conversations with Chase and his work with us here and some of the the things that we've learned through the Christian sexuality have helped me to think more deeply and more theologically about my heterosexual sexuality than, than I ever have. I'm thinking more faithfully and more deeply about that than ever in my life. Because of, of Chase's impact in my life and, and, and seeing how he is processing his sexuality and how he is thinking about what it means to be faithful to God. So what does this mean for straight people? That's the, other, that's the other way to ask this question. What does this mean for straight people? Well, this is not just a same-sex attracted issue. We all have broken attractions and temptations that fall outside the sexual boundaries that God has set for us. And like Greg so put so well in there, that same spectrum is exactly what is true for each of us. That we will all have attractions and temptations that are outside of what God says is okay. But it's when it moves to lust and behavior that we cross a line into deciding for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And that becomes sin. And so this isn't about just tiptoeing up to a line and trying to figure out what is God saying about my behavior. It's stopping and looking at and recognize that my behaviors underscore what I believe. That what, what I, what, how I behave has something to do with, with what I believe. And ultimately, this isn't just about behavior. It's about our hearts. What's in our hearts comes out in our actions. And what comes out in our actions is, is connected to what we believe. And when we look to Jesus on this, uh, so we're going to be, I forgot to tell you this, we're going to be in the book of Matthew and Romans today. And so you can turn to Matthew 5. That's where we're going to start 
Matthew 5, 27 through 30, and I'll set this up before we go there. But, but we're going to look to Jesus, and, and, and Jesus has something to say in this passage. That This is coming out of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is saying some of the most important things he's ever going to say in his ministry. And, and, and he's, he's pointing out something about our hearts that we need to pay attention to. So in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus is saying this. You have heard it said, you, shall not commit, you, should, not, you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? Well, first of all, he's not saying that that you actually need to go and cut off limbs or, or gouge out your eyes. If that was the case, we'd all be walking around with one eye and one hand. What Jesus is saying, first of all, is that what's going on in your heart is what matters. It doesn't always matter. You know, our behavior matters, but that starts in our hearts. And so if you think that you're okay because you haven't acted some, something out, what's in your heart is what Jesus is calling it. Bring your heart to me. And he's also saying when, when he's talking about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, he's not using that in a literal sense. He's using a literary device called hyperbole. It means he's exaggerating his point to make his point, which is to say what happens with sex and sexuality is so important that you would be better off getting rid of a part of your body so that you can save the rest of yourself. That's how important this is. He's saying don't mess with this. Sex inside of marriage is, is put inside of marriage because it is such a powerful part of marriage that God has given us. And when it's outside of marriage, it's still powerful. It's just power unleashed in ways that we then can't control. And so Jesus is pointing, he's putting us all in the same boat in this way. He's saying, this is everybody. This is everybody's heart on this. There is something happening here with our hearts and this will take us to our next passage in Romans chapter 1. I'll give you a second to turn there. So Jesus is putting us all in the same boat because there's something happening here with our hearts. When we act upon things that we know God to be saying no to, that is sin. And so we're going to pick up in verse 26 of chapter 1. And this is one of the verses that's most commonly used as, a, as a, an apologetic, really, or as a, a, where we point to to recognize what the Bible is saying, what God is saying through Paul here about, about same-sex uh, same actions. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for na unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their er error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile, hang on for a second, when it says they there, it's not talking about the they in the, in the previous uh, few verses there. It's talking about they in this whole section, which is the they that, that all of mankind, that Paul is speaking to, all of mankind has walked away from what God is saying is good and right. And so he's, he's giving specific examples. So this they is now all of us. They think, they think it worthwhile to retain, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they could do and would do what they ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil and disobey their parents. And so Paul is pointing here to the fact that we are all off on this. And he's also recognizing, yeah, there are some specific ways, particularly with, with same-sex actions, with, with, with people of the same sex that are, are not okay. But there's also a bunch of other sins in there that all of us have committed. Even where it talks about murder, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about murder, he's not talking about physically murdering someone. He's talking about murdering someone with your mouth, with your words. If you say something mean or terrible or nasty about something, that is murdering their humanity. That's what Jesus is holding up as murder. So we are all guilty here. And one of the tricky parts about this is that our society has, has redefined what sex is about, and it's redefined formally what marriage is. And this isn't how Jesus and the Bible define marriage or sex. And all of us are inundated constantly with how much sex, who you're having sex with, what kind of sex. And, and it's just on and on and on, so much so that it drives sex and sexuality to a part of our lives and our identity where it is never intended to be. We are sexual beings. God created sex as a powerful thing for, for men and women to experience in marriage. But when it's outside of that, it wreaks havoc. And what's more dangerous than even that is the fact that we've put it inside our hearts as the thing that identifies us. Anything that we identify ourselves by that takes priority over our relationship to God is sin. And as we move on to, I want to keep reading here, uh, verse 31 through the second chapter. Uh, it says, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the richness of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God calls all of us to follow him according to the same gospel. And he meets us with kindness and grace and truth in the midst of whatever mess that we have made. He calls us to follow him and he doesn't say, do what you want, be your own king. God knows that our ability, we don't have the ability to make choices now that will lead towards a life that is flourishing in the future. And that is the life that he has for us. That's the promise that he's given us. I want you to flourish. Follow me and I will help you to flourish. And instead, we do what Adam and Eve did, which we decide, like, I don't think God's really going to let me flourish, so I'm going to take my life back into my hands because I know better how to make my life flourish. And we know how that, that went for them, and we, we see how it goes for us. God calls us to, to, to sexual integrity, and he doesn't call us to sex and marriage or promise us a spouse. He calls us into an intimate relationship with him. And, and, and part of this, too, is that he calls us into intimate relationships with each other that are non-sexual. Part of what we see happening in the community that Jesus is building is that they are, these are people who are devoted and, and with each other. There are intimate relationships there. And in the church, these are the type of relationships we ought to have with each other as, as we're moving through life together. 
I want to introduce Jackie Hill Perry to you. Jackie Hill Perry is a poet and an author and an incredible speaker. And I'm going to read this quote uh, to you, and I'm not going to do it justice. Um, but she says, and she is also same-sex attracted, married to a man with two kids, uh, so a mixed orientation marriage, but and, and faithfully wrestling with this same-sex attraction that she experiences. She says, I think naturally you think that to, become, to come to Jesus means that you come to heterosexuality. But I really sense that God was saying, no, come to me. I am the aim of your repentance. I am the goal of your salvation. It's not you coming to some moral standard. It's you coming to a person. And she says, it felt like I didn't have a choice but to believe, and that's the Holy Spirit. Because 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how the God of this world has blinded the minds of believers that they cannot see the light that is in the face of Jesus Christ. She's on a roll. But God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give us the light to see the glory of Jesus. And it had to be nothing but the Spirit of God that helped me to see that Jesus was more worthy than everything I was submitting my life to. My repentance was not an escapism or a fear or me submitting myself to the norms of the culture. It was me saying that God was the best alternative to everything I had been living my life for. It was futile and silly to think that anything could make me more whole than the God who created me for himself. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I believed. And in believing, my temptations did not go away. I just had a greater affection competing with those temptations that I submitted my life to. And I had the power to do so. Such an incredible testimony of, of coming to belief and recognizing it was God who empowered her to do so. And Jackie's explanation of this has, should challenge all of us, not just in terms of our sexuality, but in terms of our, our obedience and our embrace of God's power as he helps us to live out what he's called us to live out so that we may flourish. So as we move to our third point, what does this mean for us as the church Specifically, what does it mean for us as the church gathered and as the church scattered? When we talk about the church gathered, we're talking about when we meet here on the weekends, when we gather with our small groups. When we talk about church scattered, we're talking about all the places that we'll go in our everyday lives throughout the world, throughout the rest of the week. Now, this is more than making sure that people are welcomed here on the weekend. And so first, we need to, again, establish that God and his church are not against gay people. This is another powerful quote from, from the curriculum that, that we're using. LGB and SSA people need to understand that God loves them, values them, and sees them as a beautiful part of his creation. For many people who are attracted to the same sex, this message hasn't always been communicated in the church. This needs to change, and you are part of that change. It's about recognizing and remembering what it means to live life with one another, what it means to, to, to bear with one another, as Paul points us to in his letter to the church of Ephesus. You know, we see that recorded in Ephesians 4 too. And Paul's letter, as he's giving them this, this, uh, this invitation to bear with one another, He's, because what Paul's accomplishing in the book of Ephesians, or in his letter, is he's saying, this is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing all things, everything and everyone under him. And so Paul is speaking to unity in the body. He's saying, you guys are all in this together. And actually part of how you're going to experience the fullness of your faith is by living this out together. If you live in your own little corners and try to figure this out on your own, yeah, maybe you can do that, but you're not going to experience the beauty of the church. 
the beauty of hearing someone's struggle, of sharing your own struggle, and then living it out and working it through together in, in, inside an intimate and vulnerable, non-romantic relationship, in friendships. And, and that's what a small group is. It's, 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 it's an intense group of people that are committed to living their life out together and figuring out what discipleship looks like as all the circumstances of their lives come to them. Our walk with Jesus isn't meant to be done in isolation. Jesus is enough, but we all need family with intimate relationships that encourage vulnerability, especially when we're walking through something that is very, very difficult. Take a look at this next clip from our curriculum. My friend Jonathan was very conservative growing up, and he grew up in a family that was very, like, had huge disdain towards LGBTQ people. And I think what you see in the media is very, you know, pompous, very proud, very... Um, flamboyant gays and LGBT members that are over the top, but that isn't the majority of LGBT people and even LGBT people in the church. There, there are people in your pews right now that are sitting there that are struggling with being not straight or experiencing same-sex attraction, and they are people. Um, the LGBT community are not problems to be solved, but people to be loved um, and people to be engaged. And what happened for my friend Jonathan is me opening up about the things like, oh, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction, but I'm not going to pursue it. I'm going to pursue God, and I'm sacrificing this part of my life. And being his friend and going through things, we were driving home one night, and he just started crying. And he's like, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that I never understood that there could be people that struggle and wrestle with same-sex attraction and don't want those desires, or that experience these things, and they choose out of it, and they choose into a really hard life. And he was just crying and crying, and I was like, Jonathan, it's okay. Like, you don't have to cry for me. He's like, I want to. He's like, I've been, I've had so much anger and so much hate towards gay people and never have I had the compassion to see them as people or to see them as people that also might be Christians and people that I might be friends with one day. And he was lamenting for me in ways that I couldn't even cry or muster up the tears to cry for myself. And it was really a beautiful expression of friendship to see someone empathize with me in such a way or sympathize with me and um, feel for me the things that I didn't know how to feel. It was amazing to see how me being open about the things that I struggled with or wrestled with was able to soften the heart of somebody else and change their paradigm on how they see the LGBTQ community. Oftentimes our response to, to people who are same-sex attracted or who, who would identify themselves as, as gay, our response comes from what we think we see out in the culture around us instead of thinking about, and about what we actually see in someone's heart. And Lori gives us a great quote that I'm going to read to you here. And, and we can do better in the church. And I don't just mean our specific church. I mean just the church in general and, and for our specific church as well. But um, I wish I could show you this part of, her, of the video because it is so powerful. And if you write uh, curriculum access on your Connect card, we can get you access um, to this. But she says this, When I graduated from college, I faced what I thought were my only two options. One was to kill myself. And the other was to become a lesbian atheist. And I thought those were my only two options because the message I was receiving from the church was that to be a Christian, you had to be straight. I experienced from a young age these ongoing attractions to my same gender, my same sex. And I was already a Christian. I prayed the prayer at five years old, and I loved Jesus as much as I knew how. And yet the language that I heard when I was listening to things like Christian radio or just Christian culture is that there's this war on marriage or this gay agenda them out there, those are the homosexuals. But us in here, in this Christian world, we're straight. And there are acceptable sins and even, even acceptable sexual sins. And they were all of the heterosexual variety. 
So then here I was with these attractions to the same sex, and I felt like, I don't fit the mold. So what Lori's saying is that she doesn't want to end her life. She's also not an atheist. But she's saying that when she was trying to figure out how to live out her life faithfully to Christ in the context of the church, those were the only two things that she felt like she, had, she could choose before. She couldn't be a same-sex attracted Christian. She had to be a lesbian atheist. And she didn't want to, she's not an atheist. She believes in God. She doesn't want to die. She wants, she wants to live. And stories like these are why over and over again, Jesus comes to the rescue of people who were outcasts or were dehumanized, sometimes based on, yes, the sin that was in their lives. And even in their sin, Jesus would come to their aid and protect them and offer them dignity and worth. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to kill yourself, but you also don't have to live your life like this. Come to me. Think about the woman in adultery, you know, that she's dragged before Jesus and there's people ready to stone her, which by the law was appropriate to do. And yet Jesus stops them and he starts writing in the sand and he, he sends everybody away who happen to also be sinners and not perfect people. And he rebukes them of that. And then he turns to her and he says, it, he doesn't say, it's okay, just don't do that anymore. He's saying, you don't have to live like this. Leave your life of sin and come and follow me. And many of the people who are already in our midst are not people who are in their sin. They're people who are following Christ, and they're trying to live this out in the context of the church community. One of the passages that you'll read in your sermon application guide this week as you move through the questions is about Zacchaeus. And we all know the story of Zacchaeus. We, and and, and if, you ha- if you don't know the story of Zacchaeus, it's a wonderful story. But we've, many of us have known this from, from a young age. And as you read it and reflect on it today, recognize the fact that what Jesus does with Zacchaeus is exactly what Romans 2 is pointing to. Jesus' kindness to Zacchaeus leads him to repentance. Jesus never rebukes Zacchaeus or calls out the specific things in his life that make him hated in society or actually just make him, first and foremost, separate from God. It's his kindness that leads him to his repentance. Our perfect model for this is found in Jesus. Jesus called people to himself with grace and with truth. And as a church, we are commissioned and called by God to uphold his word with grace and truth in our own lives and to the people around us. Jesus doesn't tell us to fix ourselves or other people and then invite them in. He tells us to call them as they are, to call them as we have been called. He calls us to be faithful to his word and to extend that with grace and goodness and kindness. And his Holy Spirit will work within our midst as the people of God to reform the hearts and minds of all of us. Ultimately, as we close it's important to not view this as a what do we do with the gay people in our church kind of sermon. That's not what this is. This is something much bigger than that. It's recognizing that engaging with and, and inviting people, all people, into our midst, and specifically here, that people who are experiencing same-sex attraction or are gay, we not only need them to minister with us, but we need them to minister to us. My life is changed because of my conversations with people writing this sermon. The way that I think about sexuality, the way that I think about my heterosexuality and marriage, and it has changed. There are things that I have been challenged by that I've never been challenged by in a heterosexual context. So this isn't just about what do we do with gay people. It's about celebrating the fact that, that God is doing something so powerful in our community when we, when we walk together through difficult topics and and issues like this and inviting people to be with us.
So as we turn to communion, um, we do so recognizing that the only way that we can do that and the only way that we can we live this out as a church is because of who Jesus is. As Jesus came and lived his life among us to show us what God is like and to, 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 to show us uh, how he responds to people who are, who are apart from him. And you and I, all of us, were apart from Jesus, from God at one point. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection is what brings us back to him and allows us to live out our relationship. And so on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus was having dinner with his friends. And at the end of the dinner, he, he stood up and he took the bread and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took the wine and he held it up to them and he said, this is my, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. God be with us as we continue to journey in this world with all of the things that are outside in the culture around us that oftentimes seem to uh, cascade and, and affect how we think about your word. Um, help us to have our minds to be renewed. Um, God, particularly on this topic, Help us to be people of grace and help us to, uh, to stand faithfully with your truth, but also to stand faithfully in the truth that you went to people who, uh, who thought that they had no part in your church. And you said, come and follow me. You said that to each one of us. And so God, we just pray that today would be a reminder of your faithfulness to us and it would help us to become better conduits of your faithfulness to other people. Help us to be faithful to your call to us. We love you. Amen.